Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of terrorism, murder, sexual assault, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. A blaring alarm woke Dr. Ron Lieberman with a start. His fingers moved instinctively across the bed, feeling for the comforting warmth of his sleeping wife, Snea. But his hands found nothing but an empty pillow. From the looks of it, she hadn't come home to their Manhattan apartment last night. It was 2001, but Snea didn't have a cell phone, so he had no way to reach her. Ron let out a heavy sigh. He knew she often stayed out late and had learned not to expect her, especially since she had time off from her residency at Staten Island St. Vincent's Medical Center. She'd probably spent the night at a friend's place. Still, it annoyed him that she hadn't called. Ron pushed aside his worry. He threw on his scrubs and headed into work at the Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. Around 9 a.m., he emerged from a meeting and found his colleagues gathered around a television screen. He pressed forward to see what they were looking at. It was the World Trade Center building, and it was on fire. Almost every American who lived through 9-11 can remember exactly what they did when they first heard the news. Ron's first instinct was to call home. The phone rang and rang, but Snea never picked up. In the chaos and panic that followed, her name became one of more than 9,000 missing persons. Just another lost soul in a sea of casualties. They lived near the Twin Towers, so Ron initially assumed she was caught in the debris. Investigators dug through the rubble, identifying the remains of more than 2,700 people. But Snea never turned up. She simply disappeared without a trace. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a one-part episode on the disappearance of Snea Ann Phillip, who was last seen on September 10, 2001. NYPD detectives reportedly learned that Snea was living a double life, but her family disputed the claims. Without a body, it's almost impossible to tell if Snea fled her home, took her life, or perished in the chaos of the September 11th terrorist attacks. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Ron Lieberman met Snea Phillip in 1995 at Chicago Medical School. She was a year ahead of him and from what felt like a different world. Snea was born in Kerala, India, but moved to upstate New York with her parents and two brothers at a young age. Raised Christian, she was bold and romantic with a passion for literature and poetry. One of her college friends from Johns Hopkins University said that Snea was, quote, the smartest person they knew in college. Ron was no slouch either, but he was a Californian born and raised in a Jewish family. He wore his hair long and sported a goatee. While Snea was gregarious, he was more reserved, but they connected in unexpected ways. The two shared a love for art and music, In their time off, they wandered through downtown Chicago in search of jazz clubs and sushi. Snea took a year off from her studies and went traveling across Italy. When she returned, she and Ron graduated and moved to New York City. In 1999, they rented an apartment on East 19th Street in Manhattan. Before they could practice medicine, they each needed to complete a one-year internship and three years of residency. Ron commuted to Jacoby in the Bronx, while Snea secured a position at Cabrini Medical Center near Union Square. They worked long hours, sometimes passing each other like ships in the night. But they were happy. In May of 2000, Ron and Snea tied the knot in a wedding that infused both Jewish and Indian cultural traditions. Ron thrived at Jacoby, but Snea struggled to balance her work and social life. In the year leading up to 9-11, Ron saw her mental health deteriorate. She'd always loved to party, but she began drinking more frequently, multiple times a week, according to a police report of her disappearance. This continued after they moved to a new apartment only a couple blocks from the World Trade Center. Her behavior soon affected her work. In spring 2001, Snea's contract at Cabrini Hospital wasn't renewed due to tardiness and, quote, alcohol-related issues. Snea's friends haven't shared many details about that time, so it's impossible to say what was going through her mind. But it's possible moving to New York exacerbated her drinking. The high stakes of her medical internship likely created immense pressure for Snea, who may have used partying as a release. And Ron, busy with his own training, may not have been able to offer the support she needed. Snea's family, however, believes something else triggered her spiral. They claimed she experienced racial and sexual bias at the hospital. If this is true, it could explain a lot about her mental state in early 2001. 
researchers have linked office-related harassment to a host of mental health conditions, including alcohol addiction. Snea's family believed this was ultimately why she was let go, not her addiction. They later told reporters she was fed up with the abuse at work and spoke out against her colleagues. Instead of helping her, the hospital terminated her position in an effort to silence her. A spokesperson for Cabrini denied these allegations. They stated that Snea never reported any sexual harassment to human resources. If there was a toxic work environment, they claimed to know nothing about it. After leaving Cabrini, Snea's life spun further out of control. After her termination, she got in a bar fight. When the police arrived, Snea accused the man of groping her. Mark Foss, a reporter for New York Magazine, wrote that the cops who investigated the incident didn't believe Snea. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office ultimately charged Snea with filing a false police report, which is a felony. According to Foss, Snea refused to change her story, even after the DA offered to drop the charges. She insisted she'd been sexually assaulted and she was willing to go to court to prove it. Snea's legal troubles took a toll on her marriage. Ron later admitted that she frequently stayed out drinking with people he didn't know. Sometimes she'd come home late. Sometimes she wouldn't come home at all. Her drinking persisted into her next job. In the summer of 2001, St. Vincent's Hospital in Staten Island hired Snea because of her impressive qualifications and talents with one caveat. She needed to attend regular counseling sessions. The hospital staff knew that Snea could be a remarkable doctor, but unless she got her drinking under control, she couldn't be trusted around patients. They believed therapy would help her get her career back on track. Unfortunately, Snea didn't take the counseling seriously. At some point in late summer or fall 2001, the hospital suspended her for skipping sessions. On Monday, September 10th, Snea had the day off. Ron accompanied Snea to court in Lower Manhattan as she defended her case. Afterwards, they returned to their apartment and Ron got ready for work. At 11.15 a.m., Ron kissed Snea goodbye and left the apartment to start a shift at Jacoby Hospital. In the hallway, he realized he'd forgotten his keys, so he doubled back and kissed her one last time before darting off. He didn't know it then, but he'd never see his wife again. Snea apparently spent the next few hours doing chores around the house. That afternoon, she was on her computer, having an instant message conversation with her mother, Ansu. The two of them were close and spoke about once a day. Only a few days earlier, they'd gone to dinner and watched a movie in Snea's apartment. Nothing about their chat made Ansu suspicious or worried. Quite the opposite. Snea seemed happy at home and excited about one of her friends getting married. At one point, she bragged to her mother about Ron's guitar skills. In other words, everything seemed normal. Around 4 p.m., Snea told her mom she had errands to run and logged off. Before she did, however, Snea mentioned visiting the World Trade Center sometime soon, but she gave no specifics that indicated when or why. 
The lobby security camera caught her leaving her apartment building at 5.15 p.m., wearing a brown short-sleeved dress and sandals. She dropped off some dry cleaning, then walked to Century 21, a discount clothing store near the World Trade Center. According to Ron's bank statements, at 7.15 p.m., Snea used his credit card at Century 21 to buy hundreds of dollars worth of shoes, bed linens, clothing, and lingerie. This was the last known record of Snea Phillips' movements the night of September 10th. Ron came home around 11 p.m. to find the apartment deserted. He assumed Snea had spent the night at her brother John's place or with one of her friends. He didn't start to worry until the next morning when he saw the smoke coming from the World Trade Center. On September 11, 2001, American Airlines Flight 11 to Los Angeles took off from Boston's Logan Airport at 7.59 a.m., At 8.19 a.m., flight attendants alerted ground control that the plane had been hijacked. At 8.46 a.m., less than an hour after takeoff, it slammed into the North Tower. People on the ground initially thought it was an accident. At 9.02 a.m., authorities ordered the South Tower evacuated. But it was too late. Just a minute later, at 9.03, a second plane hit the South Tower. At that moment, everyone realized the country was under attack, and Ron worried Snea was caught in the middle of it. As a doctor, Ron felt a responsibility to stay at Jacoby Medical Center rather than go out looking for Snea. He expected a flood of victims to stream through his hospital's doors. But by 3 p.m., it was eerily quiet. So, Ron hitched a ride on an ambulance in a desperate attempt to find Snea. It took six hours to reach his apartment building. Lower Manhattan was like a war zone, and Ron used his medical ID to talk his way past the checkpoints. When he finally arrived, he found the area coated with a thick layer of asbestos-filled dust from the collapsed towers. The power was out at Ron's apartment building, and he had no way to get up to his unit. After a restless night on a friend's couch, he returned the next day. He found his home covered in ash, untouched except by his two cats. Snea's potted plants were still in the bathtub where she'd left them to drain. She never returned to put them back. Ron brushed the filth from a kitchen chair and sat down. At that moment, he felt a crushing weight on his chest. The enormity of his loss hit him like a brick. Snea, the love of his life, was gone. He went to the police to report her missing, but the overworked cops wrote her off as just another casualty. Yet Ron held on to hope. Maybe she was still alive somewhere. He needed answers and a sense of closure. He sensed that time was running out, so he decided that if the cops wouldn't search for his wife, he'd do it himself. Coming up, Ron launches an independent investigation. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads. 
and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals, like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, back to the story. Ron Lieberman knew how hard 2001 had been for his wife. She'd been fired from one job, suspended from another, and charged with a felony. Ron believed the future had a better life in store for them. But then on September 11th, Snea vanished. Ron filed two reports with the police, who were too overwhelmed to provide much support or assistance. Snea's name was one of more than 9,000 people who went missing on September 11th, and officers assumed she died in the attack. But if that were true, Ron wanted proof. He printed flyers with Snea's face and pasted them on every street lamp in the neighborhood. When that yielded no results, he hired a private investigator named Ken Gallant. Gallant was a retired FBI special agent who'd spent years chasing down white-collar criminals and targeting organized crime. According to his website, he had a 95% success rate when it came to locating missing persons. He began by making a list of possible reasons for Snea's disappearance and tackling each theory one by one. She could have died at the World Trade Center, as the police assumed. But without a body, nothing could be ruled out. It was also possible she died by suicide, or someone murdered her the day before. Or maybe she fled to start a new life. Gallant interviewed Snea's friends and family and showed her picture to bartenders and store owners all over Lower Manhattan. No one had seen her after September 10th. Gallant scoured her computer, looking for signs she'd planned an exit, but found nothing. In her instant messages, she never hinted at leaving Ron, and she'd left her glasses, passport, driver's license, and credit cards behind. If she left without these, she wouldn't have gotten far. Not to mention, September 11th was the worst possible day somebody could attempt to run away. In New York, the Metropolitan Transit Authority sealed off the city from auto and train traffic by closing all bridges and tunnels. Less than an hour after the attacks, federal authorities grounded all air travel across the country. The only way Snea could leave Manhattan was on foot. 
suicide seemed even more improbable. Snea didn't display any of the typical warning signs. She wasn't withdrawn or isolated and didn't mention feelings of hopelessness. She didn't leave a note and had upcoming plans she seemed excited about. So Gallant kept looking. While his P.I. picked through their mail, Ron did some investigating of his own. He talked to the building's staff, who recalled seeing Snea leave on the evening of the 10th. Ron knew that someone used his credit card for a shopping spree at Century 21, but he couldn't be sure that it was Snea who made the purchases. So he convinced Century 21 to show him their security tapes. For days, he replayed the footage frame by frame, searching for his wife. A few days later, Ron received a phone call from a sales clerk at Century 21. She claimed she'd recognized Snea from Ron's flyers. She confirmed that Snea was there on the 10th. She also added a new detail. Snea wasn't alone. According to the clerk, Snea was shopping with a friend. This other woman was petite, dark-skinned, and in her early 30s. Ron couldn't remember anyone who fit this description, but Snea was a social butterfly, and he'd never met many of her friends. Ron couldn't track down the mystery woman, so he returned to the tapes. After three weeks of searching, he saw a woman browsing in the coat department in a security video. Her clothing matched the description given by the concierge. It was Snea. A few minutes later, she left the store carrying two large bags of merchandise, alone. Ron scoured the store videos for signs of the unknown friend, but found no trace of her. Maybe the woman knew how to avoid the cameras. Neither Ron nor the police were ever able to identify or locate the alleged witness. Perhaps the clerk had simply been mistaken. Gallant discovered the next potentially vital clue when he examined the closed-circuit TV footage from Ron's apartment building. Ron had insisted that Snea didn't come home the morning of September 11th. But at 8.43 a.m., three minutes before the first plane hit, a woman fitting Snea's description entered the lobby. Unfortunately, a glare from outside made it impossible to accurately identify the person on screen. But she was wearing a similar dress to Snea's and had a similar haircut. The tape showed her wandering in, waiting for a few moments by the elevator and abruptly leaving. As a result of the timing, Gallant and Ron assumed she'd heard the plane crash and rushed out to help. But she wasn't carrying any bags. If the woman was Snea, he couldn't explain what happened to her Century 21 purchases. Based on these leads, Ron concluded that Snea must have spent the night of September 10th somewhere else, maybe with her female shopping buddy. The next morning, she came home just in time for the attacks. Ron felt certain that during an emergency, Snea would always try to help. Given her medical training and proximity to the towers, Ron and her family gradually accepted that she probably died at the World Trade Center while administering first aid to the victims. On September 14, 2002, a year and three days after her disappearance, they held a memorial service at Zion Episcopal Church outside Poughkeepsie. 
But just as Snea's parents came to terms with their loss, the police finally began their own investigation. The detective in charge of Snea's case was Richard Stark. Unfortunately, the complete police case file is inaccessible to the public, and Stark has refused to talk to reporters. But limited details of his investigation surfaced in court documents and news stories. According to court documents, police dug into Snea's past. As they searched for the truth, they apparently stumbled upon a bombshell. Snea was secretly living a double life. Stark didn't believe Ron's story about Snea's heroic end. When officials looked into her time at Cabrini Hospital, they learned that her alcohol abuse had gotten her fired. While Ron insisted that Snea simply liked to have a good time, Stark's report included a much more harrowing depiction of her addiction. In addition, Stark suggested that she may have used harder drugs, but it's unclear which, if any. As we mentioned, Ron admitted Snea often stayed out all night with people he'd never met. But it bothered authorities that Snea's husband seemed so unaware of what his wife was up to. Stark tried to piece together what those late nights looked like. He discovered that Snea was fond of several gay and lesbian bars. Based on what he dug up, Stark alleged that Snea was bisexual and she'd been involved with multiple women. He also claimed that she and Ron fought about these affairs. What's more, Detective Stark alleged that Snea's brother John had even walked in on her having sex with his girlfriend. Which may have been why Stark suggested that Snea and Ron were having marital problems. On the morning of September 10th, Snea appeared in court regarding the groping incident from that spring. Stark alleged that she had a blow-up fight with Ron on the courthouse steps. Based on this pattern of behavior, Stark felt it was wrong to assume that she died at the World Trade Center. Given the year she had, he claimed it was more likely that she'd fled or died by suicide. He didn't rule out the possibility of murder, but it seemed unlikely since her body never turned up. In January 2004, based on Stark's findings, the New York City Medical Examiner's Office ruled that Snea did not perish in the September 11th attacks. They didn't know what happened to her, but she was no longer considered an official victim. Even so, a Medical Examiner's Office spokesperson, Ellen Borokov, asserted their findings may change. Her office was still sifting through DNA samples recovered in the wreckage, so it was possible Snea might turn up. But for the time being, they operated on the assumption she did not die in the attacks. When Ron heard the news, he was furious. Snea wasn't the only victim whose body hadn't been identified. There were countless others. He blamed the state's new findings on bias, and he specifically pointed fingers at Detective Stark. Ron was more than angry. He claimed that Stark's entire report was a work of fiction, and he was going to prove it. Coming up, Snea's family fights back. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! 
Yes! Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He times the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. Bang! The 2024 NBA Finals, presented by YouTube TV, begin Thursday, June 6th on ABC. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now back to the story. When Ron Lieberman couldn't reach Snea Phillip on the morning of September 11, 2001, he feared she was one of the victims of the World Trade Center attacks. After months of investigative work, he felt convinced that was true. Later, when Ron read Detective Richard Stark's official report, labeling Snea as a drunk philanderer, he felt sick to his stomach. According to him, it wasn't just misguided, it was slanderous. Snea liked to party and stay out late. But Ron claimed she never drank six nights a week, as Stark declared. And he was adamant that his wife had never been unfaithful. Whether or not it would have bothered Ron if Snea was bisexual, she apparently never mentioned any such feelings to him. Snea told him the reason she preferred gay and lesbian bars was because she felt safer there. There were fewer men to harass her. Ron also claimed that Stark fabricated several key details, like when Snea's brother John supposedly walked in on her having sex with his girlfriend. Although John's statement was written in the police report, John asserted Stark had never even spoken to him. This is particularly strange because family members are typically people of interest in investigations. Any good detective would have made John one of their first interviews. Perhaps John was trying to protect his sister's reputation. But this seems less likely, considering that he eventually married that girlfriend and had a child with her. And that wasn't the only discrepancy. The big fight that Snea and Ron allegedly had on the morning of the 10th, Ron said it never happened. He told reporters, quote, either I'm a liar or they're lying because I'm 100% positive about this. Ron believed Stark fabricated the police report due to either overwork or sheer laziness. Around 13,000 people go missing each year in New York City alone. That's an average of 35 per day. Many of them turn up eventually, but some simply vanish as Snea did. A heavy caseload shouldn't excuse shoddy police work, but it does put things in perspective. And remember, this happened on 9-11. 71 police officers died and dozens more were injured. Imagine an overworked, grieving officer with no solid leads to go on. Once Detective Stark realized that all he had were a few blurry videos and a credit card receipt, he may have decided the investigation wasn't worth his time. He may have called Snea's workplace, learned a few details, and invented the rest. It's unclear if Stark actually did this, but he wouldn't be the first. 
An investigation by the New York Times found that officers lied under oath more than 25 times between 2015 and 2018. Unfortunately, oftentimes these cops escaped punishment. An article in Slate pointed out that victims sued NYPD officer David Grieco at least 32 times for similar offenses, costing the city more than $300,000. Afterwards, his supervisors promoted him. New York City has more than 35,000 cops in uniform, so it's unfair to paint them all with the same brush. Many put their lives on the line to protect their fellow citizens. However, it's important to recognize that abuses do happen, and more often than many realize. Recently, the NYPD publicly published complaints against their officers. Unfortunately, Detective Stark retired long before this happened, so there's no way to know if anyone other than Ron accused him of falsifying evidence. Of course, there is another possibility. Stark could have been telling the truth. This would mean that Snea's family lied. The obvious reason would be to protect Snea's reputation. The family wanted her remembered as a hero who died trying to save lives. Her brother John went to extreme lengths to convince people of that. In the first few days after 9-11, when Ron was plastering the city with flyers, John gave an interview to WABC-TV. While the major news outlets ran headlines about the suspected hijackers, John wanted to draw attention to his sister's disappearance. So he told reporters about how his sister called him from the World Trade Center as the buildings were collapsing. With a solemn voice, he described how she refused to leave the area because she felt she could save lives. Supposedly, her last words to him were, quote, I have to help this person. The studio loved this tale of heroism and tragedy and shared Snea's photo with their audience. Only later did they discover that John invented the story. John and Snea had been fighting, so the last time John had actually talked to Snea was two weeks before 9-11. They reportedly argued on the call and didn't speak again. But even if they hadn't fought, Snea didn't own a cell phone, so John's alleged call was impossible. John claimed he invented the story to draw attention to his sister's cause. The news was full of stories about people who disappeared in the attacks, and John wanted to cut through the noise. But even so, his lying cast doubt on the stories of those closest to Snea. And it's possible they had an incentive to insist Snea died on 9-11. Money. In October 2003, Ron Lieberman filed a claim with the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, or VCF. This federal program provided financial relief to the families of the 9-11 victims. To be eligible, the person or their family had to prove they had died or suffered injuries directly from the attack. In other words, Ron would only be paid if Snea was actually at the towers. The actual amount would be based on a few different factors, but according to one attorney, he could have received more than $3 million. Ron claimed that he would start a memorial fund with the money. 
But when the state declared that Snea died on September 10th, those dreams went out the window. To add insult to injury, her name was taken off the memorial list of those fallen. To Ron, that was simply unacceptable. In 2005, he sued the state of New York to reverse its decision. That November, he pled his case to a Manhattan judge named Renee Roth. Roth reviewed Detective Stark's case file. She found Ron's arguments thin and lacking in evidence. Aside from the blurry lobby closed-circuit TV footage, there was no definitive proof that Snea was anywhere near the towers when the planes hit. So she dismissed the case. Ron and Snea's family believed that Stark's so-called lies created a bias against them. In their appeal, they pointed to the case of Juan Lafuente, who the state declared a victim of 9-11, despite equally shaky evidence. Juan was a vice president at Citibank and worked eight blocks away from the World Trade Center. At 8.06 a.m. on September 11th, he swiped his Metro card at Grand Central Terminal, just like every other day. And then he disappeared. No one at his bank saw him come in that morning. The police assumed he'd died at the World Trade Center, but there was no reason for him to be there. If he'd gone to work like usual, he might have been safe. The only thing tying him to the attack was an overheard conversation from a few days earlier. A patron of Juan's favorite deli testified that Juan told a stranger about a meeting at the Twin Towers sometime in the future. But the eavesdropper never heard what date. By contrast, Snea actually lived near the site. On nights that she stayed out, she always came home the next morning. Even if the blurry woman on the lobby tape wasn't her, she could have been nearby when the first plane hit. The only real difference between the two cases was Stark's less than flattering portrayal of Snea. Her parents believed this was the real reason the state denied her the same honors. In January 2008, a panel of judges reviewed Ron's appeal and overturned Judge Roth's decision. They argued that even though no evidence linked Snea to the towers, it was reasonable to assume she was there. On that day, her name was added back to the list of 9-11 victims, bringing the total number to 2,751. Her cause of death was listed as blunt force trauma from the building's collapse. The Victim Compensation Fund officially closed in 2004, meaning Ron didn't receive any money. Even though it reopened in 2011, it doesn't seem like the government gave him or Snea's parents anything. However, that didn't stop them from creating the Snea Philip Memorial Fund. They believe Snea would be proud to know that the money helps to treat patients in her birthplace of Kerala, India. Even though he won the court battle, Ron never stopped searching for answers. Unfortunately, with each year, it feels less likely that he'll find them. As of 2016, 40% of the World Trade Center victims, more than 1,000 people, were still unidentified. 2001 was a long time ago, but to people like Ron, Ansup, and John, that hurt remains and they retain hope that one day they'll finally learn what happened to Snea.
Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the disappearance of Snea Ann Phillip, amongst the many sources we used, we found the New York Magazine article, Last Seen on September 10th, by Mark Foss, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.